Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, bright and early Monday, July the 3rd, 2023, one day before Independence Day. We've done as regular viewers and listeners to Keenon know, many, many shows on crime, not just fetishizing crime, but trying to understand crime as perhaps a window into something more profound, making sense, particularly of American society. Did a show uh, last year, I thought a really good one, with a, a brilliant journalist, Nicholas Dawidoff, on uh, how a 2006 murder uh, uh, near Yale University uh, in Connecticut uh, offers a window into inequality, class, and violence in 21st century America. But it's not just crime in America that we've been interested in. We did a, a show, a memorable show uh, from March this year with the journalist Patty McCracken on how the mass murderer of Hungarian men after 160 men after the First World War uh, made sense perhaps of the sexual or lack of sexual politics in post-war Hungary. Uh, crime tells us a great deal. We've done shows on murders of journalists in Mexico. All sorts of different crimes tell us about the world. Earlier last week, um, we did a show with the uh, French journalist Clémence Michelon. She has a new novel out um, who on a, on a male mass murder of women who suggested that fiction writers, crime fiction writers, need to be more realistic. Of course, there's the fetish of real crime. Uh, women and crime is a particularly rich area, I think. Women writers on crime, women making sense of other female criminals. We did a show last year with an English journalist, B.Z. Marsh, on the rise of female gang leaders in post-war London in the 1940s. And yesterday, I did a show... Uh, with a Mexico City-based journalist, Deborah Bonello, called Narcas, the Secret Rise of Women in Latin American Cartels. In other words, the rise of female godfathers, or I guess godmothers in uh, Latin American drug uh, syndicates. All this suggests that uh, crime is interesting. It's profound. It offers all sorts of interesting ways of making sense of the world. And that's certainly... Uh, the message of my guest today, who, ha who is a lifelong expert, writer on crime, and the editor of a really interesting new collection of writing on crime, Evidence of Things Seen, True Crime in an Era of Reckoning. Sarah Weinman, uh, many of you will know her from her previous work on one kind of criminal or another, is joining us from... Uh, Upper Manhattan. Sarah, congratulations on the book. Uh, it's just out. It's out this week. Evidence of Things Seen, True Crime in an Era of Reckoning. Is this book focusing on trying to make sense of our society through crime? I suppose that it is. And frankly, that's a pursuit that I, in my, in my work, in all of my work, try to do. That crime in general is a window on society and on human behavior. And I think for a really long time, the true crime genre has focused on exceptional individual stories, the kind of stories that make you go, oh my God, that's so crazy, or oh my God, 
this is so unbelievable and so strange and I have to pay a lot of attention to it and get sucked into it. And that's still going on. But I think that the last few years, and especially since the phenomenal success of the first season of the podcast Serial in the fall of 2014, started to highlight that there were other ways of telling crime stories where you center the victim over the perpetrator, where you look at systemic inequities as opposed to just individual behavior, that you sort of see a more holistic approach and look at larger forces that help bring about certain crimes and try to kind of unpack a more thorny and messy knot instead of just looking at an an individual story. Crimes happen anyway, Sarah, Um, and they're interesting, obviously, in themselves, as you suggest, some of them perhaps rather distastefully so. Uh, Your book deals with issues like race and sexism and many of the injustices of the contemporary world. But why do we need crime for that? We can do that without crime. We can, but somehow crime is a way to explore all of these issues in a manner that I think people can understand. And certainly crime is happening whether we like it or not. And so looking at a lot of these issues, be it the unhoused, socioeconomic issues, restorative justice, there's so much that's going on and crime just continues to be a window into all of these issues and finding ways maybe not of solving these issues but understanding them and asking more questions about them. You had an interesting uh, op-ed in the New York Times um, in April. Truth is drifting away from true crime. You you mentioned true crime earlier, and I got the sense that you were ambivalent about the fashion, the obsession with true crime. What is it about contemporary America and indeed the contemporary world that makes so many people obsessed with with true crime. We've done so many shows on it. We did one with Joe Joe Pompeo on a a 1922 murder um, where Americans were obsessed with true crime. So things haven't, don't seem really to have changed that much. No, if anything, true crime as a genre has been evergreen for centuries and the same underlying obsessions of those earlier centuries and decades absolutely inform the way that we as a culture continue to be obsessed with particular crime stories. So to kind of go back to what you may have have alluded to my own ambivalence, I think if I express any sort of complicated emotions about true crime, it's because I never want to shy away that I'm a crime writer and I operate in the true crime genre, but it's a genre that I view in the most expansive and inclusive way possible that I try to look at it through the widest possible lens and that any kind of writing about crime can be included under the umbrella of true crime. So as a result, if I'm looking for the very best that this genre has to offer, I have to hold all of those writings, those articles, books, podcasts, documentary, scripted series, you name it, to the highest possible standard because I hold myself to the highest possible standard. And so even if it might seem a little unfair to compare a rigorously reported piece of investigative journalism to a podcast episode where a couple of people are sitting around with a drink or two and just talking about whatever their favorite or most, you know, intense crime story that they're 
focusing on that week. Yes, it's unfair, but I still want that chat cast to hold themselves to really high standards to get the facts right, to make sure that they're not re-traumatizing anybody needlessly, to remember that they're actual human beings and that they're, they're not just recounting an interesting story that real people have suffered trauma and pain. Because these are all things that I always wrestle with in my own work. And I hope that I will continue to wrestle with it, these issues in my own work. And if I stop, then I know I'm doing something wrong. There is an element, though, of, I guess, voyeurism. I always think crime and pornography are intimately bound up with one another. Sometimes they're hard to separate. For, for one reason or another, we seem, again, we collectively, it doesn't mean all of us, but it seems the, the culture in general has an obsession with not just crimes, but criminals. Uh, your last book, uh, Scoundrel, focused on a remarkable criminal, someone um, who was enormously seductive. Is there something almost inevitably seductive about big-time criminals, Sarah? It depends on how you view the criminal. With Scoundrel, I really endeavor to make him the least important character in the book, so that even though he is the titular character, so to speak, it's what the harm that he inflicted on everyone in his orbit at the worst end, killing a 15 year old teenage girl and coming very close to killing another woman after he was freed from prison through the efforts of people like William F. Buckley and other public intellectuals and literary types. But the harm that this person caused was a lot more interesting and emotionally resonant and what I really wanted to explore. So on the one hand, yes, you can't get away from figuring out what makes a perpetrator tick. But I think de-emphasizing their deeds and centering those whom they perpetrated harm on is a much better way forward for true crime as a genre. We had a female um, novelist, Ren Stefano, on the show few months ago she has a novel about female serial killers sort of half serious one i guess as much as any book about female serial killers can be half serious um she suggested to me that she believes everyone might have a murder in them do you think that's true do you think you might have a murder in you i mean you write about so much of this stuff it must have sometimes occurred to you to murder someone maybe me I think that everyone is capable of committing the worst possible crimes, depending on particular circumstances and particular situations that all have to present themselves concurrently and in under extreme pressure and extreme stress. And most of the time it doesn't happen because we as humans do have free will and we're able to kind of stay away from that gossamer thin line that separates us from not committing a murder and committing one. But obviously there are so many cases and I, I could rattle off so many in which people do operate in extreme stress and those particular underlying conditions convinces them that murder is their only way forward and their only palatable decision. And obviously it's not, but understanding a lot of the forces that led them there can be really fascinating. Do you think that's why you, you mentioned free will and the complexity of free will when it comes to murder? Um, that's why the great crime writers are in their own way philosophers and 
they write about this issue of free will. You edited a couple of wonderful uh, volumes of crime writing, one on women crime writers in the 50s and one in the 40s. I have to admit, I didn't know all the writers, but I'm certainly very familiar with Patricia Highsmith, who, in my view, is less of a crime writer and more of a philosopher of free will. Is there something about crime and free will and perhaps female writers that produce some someone like Highsmith? And some of the characters, of course, who, who she created. I mean, Highsmith is interesting because anyone who can be the subject of not one, not two, but three literary biographies means there's just so much going on in a psyche that can produce characters like Tom Ripley or yeah. books like The um, Strangers on a Train and Deep Water. And the one that's reprinted in the 1950s volume from the Library of America set that I did edit the blunderer, I mean, she was continually fascinated by men and masculinity and the stresses in their lives and how they might be coaxed into or cajoled into committing murder and whether they can overcome this, get away with it, grapple with it. But I mean, she did so in a way that to my mind, is kind of sui generis. There isn't anyone quite like Highsmith, which I think is also why she's so fascinating to so many readers, including myself. I wrote a piece for the Times called The Essential Patricia Highsmith, in which I outlined some of my own fascination with her work and the fact that I was really glad that I didn't come to Highsmith as a young person. I was reading mystery novels in high school, but particularly in college. But I found Highsmith kind of alienating and a little bit off-putting and I didn't I didn't really really want to understand what was going on so it really wasn't until my early to mid-30s that I delved into Highsmith's work and I feel like having lived some life really informs my ability to have a, essentially a literary conversation with Highsmith and while I haven't read all of her books it's because I know that if I read all of her books I'll feel a little bereft that I won't have any more Highsmith to read because obviously having died in 1995, she isn't publishing books anymore. No, so... no, no, no. We can, you can always start again. I mean, there seems to be something astonishingly fresh and contemporary about Ripley. I mean, he could be around today. You mentioned this issue of free will. Yes. Um, your book is True Crime in an Era of Reckoning. This era of reckoning is, of course, also an era of anything but free will. Uh, your book, in a sense, I, I guess, could be read as um, um, a manifesto of encouraging people to change the world. Uh, people read your book and then want to change it more. So what's the relationship between free will and this collection of work you put together? I mean, I hadn't really thought of it this anthology in a free will context. When I thought about reckonings, it's more that the last few years in particular, we've seen a lot of major systemic changes and we've also seen some major systemic backlashes. And of course I bring up the ongoing pandemic, the protests that arose after the murder of George Floyd, the Supreme Court ruling about that rolled back Roe v. Wade and subsequent rulings on abortion rights and what that might lead to in terms of other rights rollbacks. But I also wanted to make sure that these particular major issues were not necessarily directly addressed with the pieces reprinted in the anthology, but that 
the ones that were included got at issues that were in conversation with some of the major reckonings and backlashes that we are experiencing, which is why there are pieces about a mass shooting that happened in Atlanta that also delved into Asian American hate, a piece about the so-called golden age of white collar crime and why the federal government just continues to have an inability to convict rich people of doing financial crimes and what that might mean for the future. There's a piece on restorative justice. There's a piece on all sorts of examinations of how to be ethical in a true crime setting and remember that victims are people and so on and so forth. So there's a whole range. And I should add too that Evidence of Things Seen also builds on my earlier true crime anthology that came out in 2020 called Unspeakable Acts. And that anthology had asked the question, how has true crime changed since the first season of Serial made it much more of a cultural phenomenon to a wider audience who might not have necessarily thought of themselves as true crime consumers? And the last section of that anthology really dealt with more systemic issues. And I thought, I want to do a whole anthology that's all that. So with all these major societal changes happening that we're still going to be wrestling with for decades, what pieces best represent this current time that we're in? It comes with, a, I think, an in introduction by Rabia Chowdhury from the Undisclosed Podcasts. The issue of crime, true crime, seems to be a natural for um, podcasts. We spend a lot of time on it, we're anything but a, a, a crime podcast. Uh, what does uh, Chowdhury contribute? Tell me a little bit about her and, and, and why you worked with her on this anthology. So if you know Rabia Chaudhry's name, aside from the podcast that she did with the lawyers Colin Miller and Susan Simpson called Undisclosed, she was the attorney and advocate who introduced the reporter Sarah Koenig to the Adnan Syed case. And Chaudhry remains a family friend of Syed's. He had been convicted in the late 1990s of the murder of Heyman Lee, but there were serious questions both judicially and even just straight up whether he was innocent of the crime that got examined in part through serial, but they also left a lot out. So Chaudhry became kind of, she had major criticisms with how the first season of serial interpreted her story so she started this podcast. There was an HBO documentary. She wrote a book. She's done other podcasts. And we were introduced actually through a podcast. Um, we were guests on the New York Times podcast called The Argument, which I think is no longer running. And the idea was to have opposing viewpoints on a topic. And the topic in question was can essentially, can true crime be ethical uh, or not? And of course, Robbie and I, we have some mutual friends, so we certainly knew of each other operating in many of the same circles. We weren't really going to be antagonists on the subject. It was a much more nuanced discussion and it happened in late 2021. So when it came time to figure out who would be a good person to write the introduction for this anthology, I reached out to her because I thought that with everything that this anthology is trying to argue that she would have really interesting things to say about why people are attracted to true crime and how the genre can be an agent of change. And I thought that her perspective was a really valuable one. 
and she wrote an introduction that I'm very proud to include. Uh, you've got 14 contributors, one of whom was actually on the show uh, last week, a really impressive uh, journalist, Wesley Lowry, has a new book out on race in America, uh, what he calls The Cost of Progress in an Increasingly Multiracial America. It's a book. Surprise, surprise. It's very critical of the Republican Party, uh, especially the MAGA movement. Um, what does Lowry contribute to the book? Why did you ask him? I think Wes Lowry's piece was one of the first I wanted to include. It was about a lynching that happened in the early 1980s, which is not a decade we think that lynchings are occurring. But of course, if we think of the idea of lynching, it's unfortunately perennial, especially if you look at police shootings in that context. And Lowry is obviously a journalist I admire very, very much. He covered the Ferguson riots in the aftermath of the uh, murder of Michael Brown in 2014. He wrote a book about those riots, uh, They Can't Kill Us All. I've read American White Lash. I think it's a really important contribution to what's going on politically in America and the dangers of ignoring this kind of backlash perpetuated by white grievance that we thought that after President Obama was elected that oh, well, we don't have to see race anymore. And it turned out to be exactly the opposite. So he's just a really talented journalist. He's done a lot in crime reporting. He's also skeptical enough of true crime that yeah. I thought that his reporting on this particular story that was originally published by GQ, but just in general, again, it's, it's all about which perspectives and which writers did I want to include. And I was so taken with that particular story that I knew I had to reprint it. You're clearly politically on the left. You're a progressive, and the people you've included in this book, Sarah, uh, share your politics. You mentioned Larry's American White Lash, which we talked about last week. The forces on the right also, and I'm not saying you fetishize crime, but they do fetishize crime, the rise of crime, the fear of crime. Mm -hmm. they, they, uh, they, they turn crime into a, a race, a racial issue. Um, do the right and the left, is, is that one way perhaps of, of looking at the difference between the American right and left in the way in which they think about crime? I mean, first I should add that with respect to my politics, I'm Canadian and I feel like that just informs everything about how I look at certain things in America, often with bafflement and sometimes I suppose, yes, with a more progressive approach because Growing up in Canada, there was never any thought to reinstating the death penalty, for example. And obviously here in the States, it's a much more complicated conversation that on the one hand, there was a brief period in the 70s when the death penalty was rescinded, then it came back. And now because it's almost impossible to get drugs that can properly, I suppose, kill a prisoner and that drug companies are balking at having their drugs used for it, certain states are coming up with much more creative I suppose, ways of trying to execute people, but also not really succeeding at it. So this is also just contributing to my own sense that the way that we talk about crime is not necessarily reflective of the actual reality of what's going on in the criminal legal system and with prisons and with policing and the like. So when I see people complain about the rise of crime, I think that really just plays into people being fearful and anxious. The last three years have only exacerbated this. There 
was a spike in crime. It seems to have rescinded in 2023. But if we look at the larger picture, I mean, I was a kid growing up in the late 80s and early 90s when New York City had a murder rate of over 2,000 people in a given year. Are we going to see numbers like that again? I suspect not. But I think that, that the fear that that stoked, people still remember what it was like. And so they're trying to replicate it as they feel some kind of change, consciously or not. Yeah, I live in San Francisco, and a lot of people think of San Francisco today as being like the New York of the 1980s, which is anything but. It's actually may not always be the, the best looking of cities downtown, but it's a very safe place. Um, and of course, when it comes to crime and politics, the issue of, of guns is central. Do you deal with that in the book, this fetishization by Americans of their right to own guns as a way increasingly, it seems, of confronting, at least in their mind, criminals and criminality? Uh, if you like, privatizing the state? I don't think there's a piece directly addressing gun violence in evidence of things seen. There was a piece that I reprinted in Unspeakable Acts written by Jason Fagoni called What Bullets Do to Bodies, in which Fagoni, who is a journalist, I believe, at the San Francisco Chronicle now, he was at HuffPost then, he followed a trauma surgeon in Philadelphia and really tried to describe her work of doing surgery on gunshot wound victims who were going to survive, but just the level of physical injury done by hollow point bullets, to name one example, was devastating and catastrophic. So it's a way of saying we don't have to have like didactic pieces on issues, but pieces that humanize the costs are really, really important. I mentioned earlier the Atlanta mass shooting, and it was a Vanity Fair piece originally written by the journalist Mei Zhang. And again, I think just because it's about actual humans, but the cost of all of having incredibly easy access to guns creates a recipe for mass murder that keeps rising, that also keeps stoking people's fear. I mean, if you're a kid going to school, you have to deal with mass shooter drills. This was not anywhere close to my own reality as a child. And grappling with that especially is... Especially in Canada. <laughs> especially in Canada, or let's say in the UK or Australia, where when right. there have been mass shootings, there have also been the the tightening of gun laws. It's only in America that this level of violence is so unfettered and so unchecked, so that as a result, we just deal in a particular dystopia that other places do not. You mentioned that, that crime in, in Atlanta, which was rooted in race. The title of your book, Evidence of Things Seen, I assume uh, is casting an eye to James... James Baldwin's great work, The Evidence of Things Not Seen. It, it, does that make sense? I mean, are you acknowledging the importance of his book with, with this new anthology? Well, not only do I acknowledge it, the editor's note that I wrote specifically tracks what Baldwin was doing and sort of the underlying history of that book. It grew out of an essay that he wrote for Playboy magazine where he was approached by... The, the magazine's only black editor, Walter Lowe, to go to Atlanta and figure out what was going on with these child murders. And Baldwin gets there 
and Baldwin is Baldwin. So he's not going to write, say, a traditional crime narrative. And he certainly is wary of the police and of the government and their response. But he also is reluctant to speak with family members of the child victims because he doesn't want to burden them with his questions. He doesn't want to add to their trauma. And so when the book was published, when the essay was published in book format in 1985, which was two years before Baldwin's death, the reviews of that book were pretty baffling. They didn't really get what he was trying to do. They thought that, oh, it's Baldwin's a has-been, which was a criticism he had been facing for at least the last prior 15 years. But in the subsequent decades after his death, I think that the stature of that book in the Baldwin canon has only grown. And I think it's really become an influence on many writers coming to nonfiction crime to figure out sort of alternative storytelling methods, alternative ways of structuring the narrative, alternative ways of thinking about crime. So yes, of course, if I'm going to call an anthology evidence of things seen, obviously I was thinking not only about James Baldwin's book, but also about the biblical quote that it came from. So absolutely. Uh, Baldwin was some, is one of my favorite writers and he's someone I think I feel like I have some kind of intermittent, but still ongoing conversation. And his is a work, his is a body of work that I keep coming back to. Yeah. And it'd be fascinating to, to hear what Baldwin would think of the America of the 20 20s. I don't want to give away everything in the book because we want people to, to buy it, Sarah. It's yes. out this week. You talked about uh, Mae Jong's uh, contribution. We talked about uh, uh, Wesley Lowry. Uh, another one, another contribution that I was intrigued with was one by Justine van der Leeuwen. Tell us a little bit about her and, and why you selected her work. Justine has been operating in the crime space for quite a number of years. She wrote a book, I believe, called We Are Not Such Things which yeah. I read and greatly admired. And she did a podcast called Believe Her, which addresses many of the same issues that are present in the piece that I reprinted. It was originally in the New Republic, and it is about women who are, are victims of intimate partner violence, but who are then just completely decimated by what the criminal justice system does to them. They go to prison, they get outsized sentencing, even though the people who caused them harm in the first place, might not even get prosecuted at all. So it is a dark and unflinching look at just a, a, a kind of crime that happens far too often. I mean, intimate partner violence is so pervasive. I'm actually working on a project right now that addresses it in a different context. So I feel like Justine's work is really important. And I am so, I'm so heartened that she wrote this piece that she continues to operate in this sphere. And I know the book she's working on now is building upon the work she's already done. And I know she will continue to produce amazing things. You mentioned you're working on other projects. You seem to be someone able to balance a lot of different projects. You do two different kinds of books. One books on your own. You wrote the real Lolita and we've all already talked about Scoundrel and then there are these edited books uh, Evidence of Things Seen uh, which is out this week and then uh, Unspeakable Acts you mentioned that earlier in terms of these projects 
does one involve more work, more commitment? I'm guessing that in economic terms, it's the standalone books that are, are most rewarding. They're rewarding in different ways because I've been a writer and an editor for over two decades in different capacities. And I find that they make use of different elements of my brain. As a writer, as a reporter, as a journalist, I want to construct really engaging narratives. I want to make sure that the people who are in the books, the people I talk to are, are represented in the most humane way possible. I'm also a big archives nerd. So for both of the real Lolita and Scoundrel that required significant research in libraries. I think for the real Lolita, I went to the New York Public Library's Bird Collection and the Library of Congress. For Scoundrel, I went to the Sterling Library at Yale and Columbia University's Rare Books and Manuscripts Division because just the fact of being able to read other people's letters and documents and other related ephemera is really thrilling, but it's also really important because this is the way that people communicated and this was the paper trail that people left. And obviously it's different now when everything is digital and seemingly more ephemeral and it might require different skills to get at it. So writing fulfills a lot of different imperatives for me, but I love editing because I get to curate and I get to highlight the best writing and other means of communication by many of the most talented people working in the crime space. And I love that I can have this platform to showcase this, these other writers. And also just the challenge of editing is one that I am good at and I look forward to it. And even things like running down permissions, which a lot of people hate, I actually enjoy it because it feels like detective work. So they just fulfill different parts of my brain and even though I think that I'll probably be doing more writing than editing in the future, I suspect there will be other anthologies in my future too. I'm sure there will. I'm sure both books. Sarah, final question. I, I'm a big fan of Thomas Bohr's 16th century book, Utopia, this uh, satire, I guess, on the perfect society. And in Moore's Utopia, he imagines a world where all injustice is done away with and there are no locks on anyone's doors and there's no crime. Do you think that leaving aside Moore's parody, his suspicion, I think, of utopia, if if we had a, a relatively perfect society, perhaps somewhere like Denmark or Norway or somewhere like that, um, crime in America would be reduced or is there always going to be crime, whether or not we live in an ideal society of justice of one kind or another? I mean, I think the places that have very low crime where people feel like they don't need to lock their doors or places that are affluent and predominantly white. And so looking at the well, forces Japan that help is, <laughs> I'm talking about, affluent. I'm not sure. sure, but I'm talking about in America. And right. so figuring out how to negate the forces that lead to both actual and perceived rise in crime, there has to be speaking of free will, an actual will to create better circumstances. It's interesting you bring up Japan because I I feel like when I hear about crime in Japan, they tend to be just so outlandish and horrible <laughs> crimes. And I don't have... I don't know why I'm laughing. But no, like... no, no. I think it, it's, it's gallows humor. But it's... I wonder too if that there are just certain ways in which 
people express themselves through criminal behavior because of how they either operate in society or are marginalized in society. It comes out in different ways in America because of the ease of access to guns, but in other countries and societies where that's off the table, I, I suppose people have to get more creative, but also I think that, you know, the danger is we can't necessarily extrapolate what's happening in America to what's happening in other countries that they're both, they're some discrete forces and understanding all of those forces is really important.